Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. continue through our study of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6 this morning. Many of you are probably aware that the early church experienced a lot of persecution under the Roman Empire. In 64 AD, a fire broke out in the city of Rome. And Nero was the emperor at the time, and and Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome. And and what Nero did was he would gather up Christians, and he would put animal skins upon them and let them loose in the arena during the time of the gladiators to be fed to the wild animals. Nero also did this. He would take Christians, dip them in tar and pitch, put them on post and light them aflame to provide lamps for his personal gardens. That's some serious persecution of Christians. In 155 AD, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. As an 86-year-old man, he was taken before the authorities and told that he had to denounce Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I've lived 86 years as a follower of Christ, and they burned him at the stake. Polycarp. In 320 A.D. in India, I mean in in, um, Turkey, you've probably heard of this story. There were 40 Roman soldiers who were Christians. And they were forced to go out on this ice lake, totally stripped down to nothing, and to freeze to death on this lake because they refused to bow into claiming allegiance to Caesar instead of Jesus Christ as Lord. You've probably heard these famous stories of Christian persecution, but have you ever heard of the story of Emperor Decius? Emperor Decius was an interesting Roman emperor. He didn't necessarily want to kill Christians. He didn't want to martyr Christians. What he wanted Christians to do was to become apostates. He wanted them to deny their faith. And so what he did was he would torture them, he would abuse them, and many of them survived. And if you survived these tortures and came out as one who did not deny Christ, you were called a confessor. Those that did deny Christ were called apostates. And so the confessors became very popular among the Christian church. They were revered, they were respected because under the immense weight of persecution, they did not cave in. They remained faithful to Christ. And when you do a survey of church history you soon discover that God's people have always experienced external opposition. There's always been those from the outside that have come in, have wanted to torture Christians, have wanted to brutalize Christians, have wanted to come against Christians, to try to do anything they can to stop God's people and God's work. And there will always be opponents to God's people and God's work. Always. It may come in the form of gossip, it may come in the form of slander, it may come in the form of maligning or backbiting or or any type of of physical abuse. It may become in being made fun of, the brunt of cruel jokes. There's always going to be people out there that are going to respond in hostility to God's people. 
So how do we as Christians respond? How do we respond to opposition? When the opposition comes, do we remain faithful to the mission? Do we remain faithful to Christ? How do we respond when there's serious opposition to God's people and God's work? And we see this loud and clear this morning in the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you remember from last week, Nehemiah went before King Artaxerxes and he got permission to go back and rebuild the wall. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and he does a thorough inspection of the wall. He walks around the wall at night. He gathers the people together and says, God's hand is in this. This is God's vision. Let's rise up and build. The people are excited. The people are on board. The people are raring to go. There's motivation. There's excitement. There's enthusiasm. There's optimism. And right at that moment is when the opposition comes in full force. And so in chapter 3, which we're going to skip over this morning, because mainly chapter 3 is the building of the wall. It's just very detailed description of the building of the wall. And as we go into chapter 4, we're going to see something very critical that we need to understand as we go through the book of Nehemiah. So here's the main idea for this morning. And it's simply this. God's ordinary people, remember Nehemiah is an ordinary guy, we're ordinary people, God's ordinary people will experience external opposition while attempting extraordinary things for His glory. God's ordinary people will experience external opposition when we attempt extraordinary things for God's glory. And so the rebuilding of the wall does not come without deceit, without treachery, without opposition. And we're going to see this in full technicolor this morning. And so thematically, we're going to look at chapters 4 and chapter 6. Next week, we'll come back to chapter 5 because it deals with a different theme. But chapters 4 and chapter 6 really deal with the same issue. It's the external opposition that comes to Nehemiah and the Israelites as they are rebuilding the wall. So for this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at six. Six overarching issues related to this issue of external opposition. We will see them in chapters 4 and in chapter 6. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to take this in bite-sized chunks this morning. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, when they are building up a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The first type of opposition we see here is opposition by ridicule. Ridicule. We were introduced to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem last week. 
these pagan Gentile leaders who stand opposed to Nehemiah and his work. And what they engage in is almost like a psychological type of warfare. They are trying to ridicule the Jews and, and to lower their esteem and to engage in psychological warfare to play with their minds. And notice what he says. They get angry, they jeer, and notice what he says there in verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? That word's a very colorful word in the Hebrew language. That word feeble means to wither like a plant. So what Sambal is basically saying is, what are these weakling, withering, dried up, useless little Jews trying to do over here? Did they think they're all that? What are they attempting to do? Nehemiah had just inspired them to action, as we'd seen last week. They're motivated. They're ready to go. They're inspired. And then all of a sudden, he comes to them and says, what do you guys think you're doing? You're nothing. Are you going to rebuild this wall? Do you think that you're going to be able to do this? Are you going to be able to do this by yourself? He goes straight for their optimism. He goes straight for their courage. He goes straight to the psychological pushing them to begin to doubt what they're doing. And then Tobiah comes up with this really sick joke. He says, hey, even if a fox jumps up on this wall, the whole thing's going to crumble down. A little tiny fox is going to mess up this whole thing. Now, archaeologists have gone back and discovered Nehemiah's wall. Do you want to know how thick that wall was? Nine feet thick. Do you think a little fox is going to break it down? So they're attempting everything they can to ridicule, to mock, to demotivate, to discourage, to play mind games with the Israelites into thinking that maybe this isn't God's vision. Maybe this isn't God's will. Maybe we are feeble. Maybe we don't have what it takes. Maybe we are weak. And this ticks Nehemiah off greatly. He gets a little upset, and he offers up what we call an imprecatory prayer. Now, it's interesting that what he prays, he prays this really strong prayer. Lord, let these guys have it. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Let these guys not go unpunished. God, give it to them. Let, let the guilt come back on their heads. And so he expresses some righteous anger. Nehemiah is upset. Now, is it appropriate to express righteous anger? Yes. Did Jesus express righteous anger? Do you remember the time he made a leather whip out of his belt and overturned the money changers in the temple? Paul gives us permission to express righteous anger. In Ephesians 4, 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul gives us permission to be angry, but then it's how we take it further. And so Nehemiah prays this very interesting prayer. Lord, let him have it. Let it rip. God, bring justice down upon these enemies. Now, we have to ask a question. As Christians, should we pray this way? Because it doesn't sound very loving. It doesn't sound like we're loving our enemies. Should we ever pray like this? Is there a time when things have gotten so opposed to God's work that we respond with righteous anger and we pray to God to do something to his enemies? Now, we need to understand two things about this prayer. Number one, Nehemiah is not asking for personal permission to go take matters into his own hands. It's not like he's saying, God, let me go take advantage. Let me go take care of this. He says, God, would you take care of this? We're reminded of Romans 12, 19. 
where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Nehemiah does not have permission to go take matters into his hands and, and repay evil here. But secondly, I think it's appropriate. And I think we have spiritual permission to pray a prayer against enemies of God, that God would thwart their plans. I think we have permission to say, God, in your sovereignty, would you stop what these enemies of your work are doing? Now, God is sovereign, and he can work it out in his own timing, in his own way, but I think we have permission as God's people to say, God, we see injustice. God, we see things wrong here. God, we see opposition. Would you come against that in your sovereignty and do something about it? I think we have permission to do that. And so, in light of this ridicule, in light of this psychological warfare, they're coming against Nehemiah and the people with ridicule. But notice verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. That's an interesting phrase in the original language. The people had a mind to work. Literally, the people's hearts were passionately committed to this work. Their hearts were in it. Let the opposition come, but we've seen, as we saw last week, this is God's vision, this is God's plan, the hand of God is here, we know it's God's will, we're not going to let up. Our hearts are in this, we're committed to this. We are going to diligently continue fighting for the rebuilding of this wall because we know God is on our side. But that doesn't stop the detractors. If psychological warfare and ridicule does not work, what's the second tactic they bring? How do they ratchet up the heat? Well, let's see the second type of external opposition. Here's the second type of of, of external opposition. First of all, it was by ridicule. Secondly, it's by military pressure. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. Let's look at this military pressure. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now you need to understand something about these, these, these four enemies coming against him. You had Samaria in the north. You had the Ammonites in the east, you had the Arabs in the south, and you had the Ashdodites on the west. So it was a a four-perimeter, full-court press, if you will, where on all four sides, Israel would have no way out. This pressure came from all four sides and said, if you're going to rebuild this wall, we're going to get some military pressure. We're going to have four points, north, south, east, and west. We're going to be coming against you as your enemy. And so how do they respond? We see this almost every time in almost every chapter in Nehemiah. What do they do? Verse 9, and we what? Prayed. We prayed to our God for protection. Now we've seen two types of prayers. The first type of prayer of Nehemiah was, Lord, let him have it. The second type of prayer is, God, we need protection. God, protect us. That's an important prayer. I hope you pray that for your family. I hope you pray that in, in your life. God, I need protection. Lord, protect me. We need a hedge of protection. God, would you, would you protect me and my ministry, me and my family? Lord, we need protection. And God promises to protect them. But this doesn't mean that the people aren't affected by this. 
doesn't mean they're robots. Like, they're, they're not like Spock on Star Trek where, where they're stoic and this doesn't affect them. How is it going to affect them when you have a full court press of all these nations coming against you? You have this ridicule coming against you. You have this opposition. How do they respond? Well, here's the third issue for this morning. What's their response? What's the people's response to this opposition? We've seen, number one, the ridicule. Number two, we've seen the military pressure. Let's three, look at their response. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will know, they will not know or see till we come through them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, and in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, the people here are plagued with fear, discouragement, and there's two big issues. And, and you see these two issues. Anytime God's people are attempting to do something for his glory, you're going to see these two issues. Here's the first issue that, that's just very common. Physical exhaustion. They are physically exhausted. They're, they're pooped. Notice what it says there. Verse 10. The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. They are extremely tired. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to rebuild a wall, a lot of physical exertion. And here's what oftentimes I've seen happen. When you are um, physically tired, when you're physically exhausted, aren't you more susceptible to discouragement? Aren't you more susceptible to um, despair? Aren't you more susceptible to be kind of cranky if you're physically tired? And that's what's going on here. They are physically tired. But secondly, not only are they tired, but they give in to pessimism. They've got this defeatist attitude. Notice what they say there. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. It's too much work. There's too much rubble. Now, here's the issue. Before they could even build the wall, they had to go clear out the rubble from the old wall. So before you even got to, to getting to see a wall come up, you had to go clear out the old stuff. And they're saying to themselves, this is too much. We can't, we can't do this. There's too much rubble. And then they may begin to believe what Sanballat and his friends are saying. Maybe we are feeble. Maybe we are weak. Maybe we can't do this. Nehemiah, this is great that this is your vision, but let's be realistic. This is, this is not working. We can't do it. We are defeated. We're pessimistic. The glass is half full. It's too big of a deal. Now, listen to what one commentator has said, and I'm going to see if you agree with him or not. I'm not sure if I agree with him, but it's a provocative statement. Here's what he said. It has been said that in the history of the church, pessimism has always been a greater problem than atheism. Pessimism, a greater problem than atheism. I'm not sure if I agree with him, but think about pessimism for a moment. Does pessimism grow? Is pessimism infectious? There's always this attitude. When you get a bunch of pessimistic people together, it seems to just grow like cancer, doesn't it? Well, we can't do this, or this is going to go here, or we can't do this, and, and then it just begins to build with pessimism. It begins to build with the defeatist attitude, and that's what they're experiencing here. We can't do this. I thought, Nehemiah, 
I really thought, Nehemiah, if this was a God-ordained vision, things would run smoothly, there would be no problems, there would be no opposition, everything would be hunky-dory, and we'd just be able to rebuild this wall. Has that ever happened in your life? Have you ever had smooth sailing? Maybe a few times. Are we ever guaranteed a smooth path, especially when you're doing something great for God's glory? And so what does Nehemiah do to deal with it as a leader? They're physically tired, and they're pessimistic. First of all, he does something tactical. He sets up what I call worker warriors. Worker warriors. Okay, picture the wall here, and you've got these families living in certain areas around the wall. So he says, wherever you live, by your clan, that's where you're going to work on the wall. And in one hand, you're going to have your sword, and your other hand, you're going to have your building material. So you're going to be building the wall with one hand, and the other hand you're going to have your sword ready to fight. And you're going to do this where you live, with your women and children behind you, always as a visual reminder that what we're doing here is very important. We're protecting our family, we're protecting the future generations, they're worker warriors that he sets up there to, to build the wall, which makes a lot of sense. I'm going, to, I'm going to fight in one hand, I'm going to work in the other hand, and if somebody comes, I'm going to fight, and if the wall needs to be done, I'm going to work on the wall, the sword and the trowel. But then secondly... He gives them a powerful testimony of God's grace, of God's power, of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 14. He knows that they're dejected. He knows they're depressed. He knows they're pessimistic. He knows they're tired. Verse 14, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, what's the first thing he says? Do not be afraid. Reality check, Israelites. Don't be afraid. Don't stress out. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. And what's the second thing he says? Remember. Remember who? This Lord who is what? Great and awesome. We serve a great and awesome and powerful and sovereign and gracious and majestic God. He's the one we're serving. It's his vision. It's his plan. Remember who it is that's giving us the ability to rebuild this wall. Don't be afraid, Israelites. Keep your eyes fixed on this great, sovereign, awesome God. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And then notice what else he does. Fight. Fight. This wall is worth fighting for. Get up and fight for your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your sons. Fight for the community. Nehemiah says there's some things that are just worth fighting for, and this is one of those. So don't back down. You are doing something for the entire nation, and you're to do this as a community. You're to do this as a family. This is not an isolationism, oh, me and Jesus over here in a corner, Lone Ranger mentality. Nehemiah says this is vitally important to the health of our nation. It's vitally important that the entire community, the entire collective come together, and we build this wall. So let's keep fighting, every single one of you. Station yourself by your family at your point of the wall. Have a sword in one hand, have your trowel in the other hand, and be ready to fight. This is worth fighting for. So we've seen the external opposition. Number one, ridicule, psychological warfare. Number two, military pressure. Then we see the people's response. I am tired. I am pessimistic. I'm discouraged, Nehemiah. Are are we really feeble like they say we are? Are we really going to be able to get this done? And Nehemiah says, remember who it is we're serving. Get up and fight because we have an awesome God. But let's look at the fourth thing. Look at God's God's response. The fourth is God's response to their prayers. God knows exactly what they need. Look at verse 15. Let's look at verses 15 through 23. 
when our enemies had heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, I love that, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. God answered the prayers of the people. What did it say there? God frustrated the plans. What did they pray for? God give us protection. God, we're tired. God, we're discouraged. God, we need help. God, we're feeble. What did God do? What God always does. He proves himself strong in the midst of our weakness. I love this passage of scripture, Psalm 18, 1 through 3. Listen to what the psalmist says. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Notice how many times he says, my God. It's not just some distant God out there. It's my God, and my God is strong, and my God is powerful, and my God's going to protect, and my God's going to take care. I love you, my God, because you are my strength. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I hope you see that God's a protector God. He's a refuge. He's never has has present help in times of trouble. He's our rock. He's our foundation. He's He's our source of strength. He comes through when we are weak, when we're feeble, when we feel like we can't go on. God comes through and says, I am your rock. Trust in me. I'm powerful. And there may be some of you that have walked into this room today and said, I can't make it one more day. I really literally cannot make it one more day. I'm just like those people in Nehemiah's day. I'm exhausted. Sean, you don't know how exhausted I am. Or or I'm defeated. I'm deflated. I'm discouraged. I'm pessimistic. I, I just can't make it, Sean. If you knew what was going on in my life, I'm just exhausted. And I hear all the voices coming to me saying, oh, you know, you're this or you're that or you can't do this or you can't do that. And you just need to step back and, and be like Nehemiah and pray and say, God, would you give me a bigger vision of yourself? You are a powerful, holy, righteous protector. Let me run into you and be safe. Some of you may need to run into God this morning and be safe. God is a strong tower. God is an ever-present help in trouble. He's your rock. He's your salvation. Run to him. Run to him. Okay, chapter 4 shows us psychological warfare, this ridicule. You guys, are, you guys are feeble Jews. You can't do it. And then military pressure. We're going to surround you on all four sides. 
And the people are like, we can't, we're starting to believe them. We're, we're deflated, we're dejected. Nehemiah says, God's your protector. God will fight for us. He stations warrior workers there. And then we come to chapter 6. Let's skip over chapter 5. We'll get to that next week. Because in chapter 6, the wall is almost finished, except for the doors and the gates. And Sanballat and his cronies are, are going to ratchet up the heat in, in, in a lot of ways here to try to stifle the rebuilding of the wall. One last-ditch effort to see if we can stop this. It hasn't worked up to this point. God's been on their side. Let's try one last-ditch effort here to see if we can stop the work of the wall. And so here's the fifth big issue we see this morning. External opposition by deceitful ambush. Ambush. Let's read it unfold here. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakapirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that's why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent him saying, no such thing as you've said have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. One sure way to bring disaster is to take out the key leader. If we just take out Nehemiah, that'll be the ticket. So they decide to either kidnap him or assassinate him. We're not really sure, but, but it's kind of like this. Hey, Nehemiah, why don't you come out here into this dark alley, just you and me, and we'll have a little polite conversation. Anybody want to do that? Nehemiah has street smarts here. He, he's not going to go out in this open plain of Ono by himself to sit down and talk with these guys. He says, listen, I'm not even going to dignify you guys with the response. The work of this wall is too important for me to come down off the wall and deal with you. It's a figment of your own imagination. Guys, leave me alone. You're not even worth it. And he's resolute because they kept coming to him time and time again. Hey, come out here. We want to talk to you. And then that doesn't work. And so they send an open letter. Now, you may not understand what an open letter is, but they send this open letter that says, Nehemiah, basically, you want to be king. Now, an open letter would be like this. If you were to send an email on Facebook to a person and just the other person that you wanted to receive it, what do you do? You send an email. This would be like posting something on Facebook for everybody to see. It's this open way of saying, Nehemiah, do you realize what you're doing? You're trying to become king here in Jerusalem, and if word gets back to the real king, it's going to be problems. Let's, let's come talk about this. And Nehemiah says, you guys are crazy. You guys are crazy. I'm not, you're making this stuff up in your mind. I'm not even going to deal with my detractors. I'm not even going to deal with my opponents. What really I need to focus my energy on is this wall. 
This is what's important. This is God's work. I'm not going to deal with my enemies. I'm not going to deal with my detractors. I'm going to stay focused on this wall. But notice what we see Nehemiah doing. What's he always doing? At the ver- end of verse 9, it's a prayer. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Just a real quick prayer from Nehemiah. God, I need strength. I need emotional strength. I need physical strength. I need spiritual strength. This is getting to me, God. I'm the key leader here, and I got people complaining, as we see in chapter 5, and I got these guys coming from outside, and they want to assassinate me. God, just help me to make it through. God, help me. Strengthen my hands. Okay, so physical ambush doesn't work. Physical assassination doesn't work. So what's the next tactic? Well, let's do political assassination. Let's send this open letter. If we can't assassinate him physically, let's assassinate him politically. That doesn't work. So they have one last effort. And here's the the sixth issue. Spiritual entrapment. Let's go straight for this guy's relationship with God and discredit his testimony. Let's see how this happens. 10 through 14. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, would you love to have those names? Who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Naodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So this guy, this priest, Shemaiah, who's hired, by the way, He's a hired priest. He's, they bribe a priest and said, hey, we're going to buy you off. Go to Nehemiah and say, hey, run for your life in the temple. Go hide out in the temple. And you made me think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, number one, he's a false prophet. He's a false priest. But number two, think about this. Think about this. At first glance, you may think, well, yeah, that's a cool place to go to the temple. Nobody's going to harm me in the temple. But what does Nehemiah say? Number one, Nehemiah says, I'm not going to run away. Now, we've known from this point, does Nehemiah back down from controversy? If he would have run away, he would have lost all credibility with his people. I'm not running away from this. I'm going to face it head on. I'm not running away. I'm not going to be a coward. But number two, he knew that if he went into the temple, he would be directly disobeying God's word. Who was allowed into the temple? Only the priests. Number two, Nehemiah was probably a eunuch. Now, kids, you can talk to your parents later about what a eunuch is. He was a cupbearer to the king. Eunuchs were not allowed into the temple. So for him to go into the temple, it would mean that he would be breaking his conscience, breaking the command of God, and going in direct violation of what the Scripture says. And so what's most important to Nehemiah is his spiritual reputation, his integrity. He's not going to let his integrity fall because these guys have hired a false prophet. He knows what happens to false prophets. Deuteronomy 18.20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or what speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. He knew this was a false prophet. He knew this man wasn't from God. He wasn't going to be fooled. What's the most important for Nehemiah out of all of this, the most important thing for Nehemiah is my personal 
testimony, my personal integrity, my name. He understood Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. His, his reputation is the most important thing to him. It's interesting that sometimes false prophets will come in among God's people and try to throw them into confusion when they're attempting to do great things for God. Let's just hire a false prophet to come in and kind of steer the people in a direction. You can go back and read 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 and find out about false prophets. But behind all of this, Sanballat may be the enemy, Tobiah may be the enemy, Geshem may be the enemy. Who's the real enemy behind this? Satan. It's the devil. We have a real enemy that's going to attempt to thwart God's purposes. What does Peter say about the devil? He wants to destroy, deceive, and devour. 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking or seeking someone to devour. The devil's just looking for someone to eat. And we need to understand that as God's people, when we attempt extraordinary things for his glory, the devil's going to ratchet up his heat. He's going to bring external opposition. There's going to be opposition from the enemy. John 8, 44. Listen to what Jesus says. He's talking to this, the Pharisees here, but he makes a statement about the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a murderer he is a liar, he is a lion, he is the great red dragon, he is a serpent, he's a deceiver, he's an enemy, he's an adversary, and he is real. And he will come against God's people, and we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for the attacks of the enemy. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how do you and I stand strong in the face of opposition? When you get discouraged, when you get exhausted, when you get deflated, when the gossip comes, when the slander comes, when the pressure comes, when the jokes come, when the persecution comes, when all of these external oppositions come, how do we stand? How do we respond? Well, we do what Nehemiah did. What do we see Nehemiah do all through this, this book, really? He prays. Sometimes long, agonizing prayer and fasting. Other times, just quick prayers up to God. We pray. And what do we do? We ask God, God, give us a big view of yourself. You see, the bigger God becomes, the smaller our enemies truly are. When you ask God, God, give me a view of yourself. I don't want to see the situation. I don't want to see my enemies. I want to see you. When you see God, your enemies will become small. And notice what James 4, 7 says. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There will be opposition. The devil will come. There's a repeated word that happens all throughout Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6. What's the real root of this issue? What's the real root of this issue? In chapter 4, verse 14, what does Nehemiah say? Don't be afraid. 
In chapter 6, verse 9, they wanted to frighten us. In verse 14 of chapter 6, they wanted to make me afraid. Fear. Fear is paralyzing, isn't it? Fear of failure. Maybe even fear of success. Fear of man. Fear. One of the greatest things that I think keeps Christians in a state where they're not supposed to be is fear of man. We fear what other people say about us. We fear what other people can do to us. We fear the opinions of others. We live in fear of what others are doing for us. Fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25. Listen to this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. When I am afraid... I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh, some translations say, what can mortal man do to me? Now think about that for a moment. What really can other people do to you? Well, they may kill me, Sean. Well, can they kill your soul? No. Well, they may say bad things about me. They may do this to me. Ultimately, when we face opposition, do we fear man or do we fear God? Do we trust in the sovereignty of man or do we trust in the sovereignty of God? Do we truly bank on God's gracious protection or do we run in fear wondering if God is really for us? Do you believe, Christian, this morning that God is for you? I hope you believe that. I think a lot of Christians live as if God's not for me. Can I read you an encouraging passage of Scripture in preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning? I may ask you to turn there, but it'll be on your screen. Let's, let's just turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to be encouraged this morning that God is for you. Don't fear man. Understand that God is the great and awesome and sovereign and powerful and wonderful and glorious God who's for you. Probably the most powerful passage of Scripture that we go to a lot of times when we're discouraged. Romans 8, 31. Let's look, let's look at verse 31 through 34. Romans 8, 31. It's on your screen as well as if you want to look at it in your own Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the, and the answer is no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what does God say there? If God is for us, who's against us? No one. Why is God for us? The answer, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the fact that his blood covers a multitude of sins and he's the one interceding for you and your sins have been forgiven, your life has been changed by Christ, you're a new creation in him. He's for you because he gave his son for you. Stand up and say hallelujah that we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, don't really do that unless you feel led to do that. Who's for? I mean, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can man come against you? No. Now let's just keep going in case that didn't give you enough, um, enough excitement. Let's keep reading. Verse 35. Who? And this is all rhetorical. And, and Paul's, Paul's rhetorical mode here is, is the answer is nobody. Okay, so who 
shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are hyper-Nike. Just a little translation there. I didn't know if you knew that that's what it meant there. Nike is the word for conqueror, hyper, more than. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, I'm confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Nothing can separate us from God's love. What can mortal man do to me? I mean, that's why we can approach the Lord's Supper today with great confidence. We can approach the Lord's Supper with confidence to know if God is for us, who's against us? If God is for us, who is against us? We come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning because we have a God who's powerful. We have a God who's eternal. We have a God who's glorious. We have a God who did not spare his own son. We have a God who gave us Jesus. And we come this morning to the table in celebration that we are secure in his grip. As the song said, no power of of man or scheme of hell could ever take us from the hands of an almighty God. Christian, bank in the fact that when we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we are celebrating the fact that we are secure in the grip of our sovereign Savior and nothing can separate us from his love. And that's got to give us encouragement. In times of discouragement, in times of doubt, in times of despair, in times of loss, in times of exhaustion, if you don't believe that God is for you, if you don't believe that you have a sovereign Savior, if you don't believe that there's a God who's for you and who loves you, I don't know how you're going to make it. May our view of God be great. May we see God as greatly as he really is. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning in preparation for taking the Lord's Supper. If God is for us, who can be against us? Spend just a few moments in silent prayer preparing your heart and your mind to partake of the Lord's Supper. And let me just say this as you're in preparation that The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that Jesus Christ gives to his church. We take it very seriously that it is only for Christians. It's for believers. It's for those who've placed their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if that does not describe you this morning, if you can say in your heart of hearts, I'm not a Christian, then out of respect for Jesus and his command and out of respect for our church, we'd ask you simply not to take the Lord's Supper. Instead of taking or receiving the elements of communion, take and receive Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. And after the service, we'd love to, to, to sit with you and talk with you about how you can have that relationship with Christ to know that he's for you and not against you, to know that he saved you, to know that there's the great love of Christ. So let's just spend a few moments in quiet reflection thinking about the love of Christ. Lord's table this morning. May we be thoroughly encouraged by the fact that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. That if you are for us, God, who can be against us? That you sent your precious son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to give us the victory over sin and death, that we might have life eternal and life abundant here 
that tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword cannot separate us from you. And that life or death or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or death or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Spirit, would you cultivate confidence in hearts this morning that may be discouraged? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd ask those that are going to help with the Lord's Supper to make their way at this time.